God, we have already asked that you meet us in this place. and We've been worshiping your name today and lifting your name up and reminding ourselves that it's you that we worship and not anything else. And this world may worship many different things, God. But we are your people. And we come here to remind each other and ourselves that you alone are our king. And it's your opinion that matters. It's not anyone else's opinion that matters. We want to hear from you today, God. I pray that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged as a church, as Christians. Pray that you would speak to us where we're at, God. Speak into each person's heart and life and mind in a way that only your spirit can. We need you here and present, speaking through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I just want to talk through a few questions. First off, so... Question number one that I think we need to get out of the way, and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here, is is just the question, is homosexuality a sin or what? <laughs> because there's, uh, there's just, again, it's, it seems like you know there wasn't much confusion on this topic several years ago. Now there is, and there's a lot of us, partly maybe in, in part because there are people that we love and care about who are in this lifestyle, and we... And we have a soft heart for them as we should and so it's just hard to wrestle with that question a little bit not only that but just the way that our world reacts to that question right now just everyone gets on the defensive and offensive all of a sudden you know when you start talking about the sin word and especially in this context and so let's just talk about it for a moment And again, I don't want to spend very long on it because actually I don't think that there's many things that the Bible is is more clear on than this topic. And, you know, there's a lot of things that we look at in the Bible and we look at in our world and we say, well, what does the Bible say about this? And we really have to dig deep and look for principles that can apply to this situation because it doesn't specifically talk about it. But this is one of those situations that is pretty specifically talked about from the front cover to the back cover. And even so, you're going to find Christians already, and increasingly so, who will explain away much of what the Bible says. In fact, at the convention on Wednesday night, a quote that stuck out to me, this was said before all this you know, boiled over and came down, and Francis Chan was speaking. Uh, some of you may be familiar with him and his books and his work, but uh, he was speaking on Wednesday night, and one of the things he said was, he said, you name a sin... And I'll find you somebody with a PhD that'll show you in the Bible how it's not a sin. And we live in a time period where very much what the Apostle Paul warned about in that people were going to seek out teachers and tell them whatever they wanted to hear kind of thing. That we're living in that time. And there will be, increasingly so, people who will explain away uh, you know, what, what we read in the Bible. But again... From the first pages to the last. This is consistently talked about. And for instance. From the first pages talking about creation. God talks about things in pairs. As he creates life and matter. And he talks about light and darkness. He talks about separating sky from earth. And water from the ground. From the dry ground. He talks about creating 
birds in the sky and fish in the sea. He talks about creating animals and he talks about creating humans. And then he talks about creating man and he talks about creating woman. And all these things are interlocked and there's this order and this complementariness, if that's a word, to what God created. If you fast forward, you get to the law of Moses where God gives his laws and when you read through Leviticus there's a couple of chapters in there little raise your eyebrows when you read about some of the sexual immorality that God said now when you go into this land you're going to find all this going on don't do it you're going to find this going on don't do it you're going to find this going on and it's a long list and some of it you shake your head and say people really did that yes people did that and they still do And God said, you don't do it that way. Because that's not my way. And you're going to be my people, speaking to Israel. You can fast forward all the way to Jesus. You'll hear some people say, well, Jesus is silent on the topic of homosexuality. And so I will be too. Or something like that. Or or in his silence, then maybe therefore it's okay. Or that kind of thing. Uh, that, it's a bit of a stretch to say Jesus was silent on the subject because he was very specific about what marriage looked like saying that it's between a man and a woman and it's for life he was also uh, he also did talk about sexual immorality and the Greek word that was used is one that's used elsewhere in the New Testament in several places where it does include homosexuality and one place that specifically refers to homosexuality. So again, to say that Jesus didn't address the topic is a bit of a stretch. But when you think about it, his culture that he, wasn't, that he was in, it wasn't a hot issue in Judea at the time. All right, People in the Jewish culture that he lived in and walked in, this was not on their radar, much in the way that this hasn't been on our country's radar for a long 200 years, you know. And so it wasn't a hot topic needing to be addressed. But then as the gospel spread out of Judea and into the Greek and Roman pagan worship world out there, then it did become an issue. And it became an issue for the church quickly. And you see the Apostle Paul and others writing very strong words about, hey, this and other things, no, this is not God's way of life. I think one of the struggles we have is when we say, you know, people in the world ask, well, do you think homosexuality is a sin? See, sins become this word that's taken on a whole life of its own. And it just carries with it a lot of baggage and and a lot of fire and brimstone preaching. And people, what they're really asking, and they're waiting for you to say, well, yes, I think homosexuality is a sin. And, and then they're going to pounce on you and say, so just because someone is, you know, has an attraction to other people, they can't help it, and they've got this attraction, and, and they're, they're just that way, and so you think they're going to burn in hell because of that? And they get so angry, right? And all we're trying to do is say, well, this is what the Bible teaches. But I think part of what gets lost is, is we think of I mean, our world and our, our society has come to think of sin as this rule-breaking that results in hell. And that's as far as we get with sin. That, oh, well, this is on our list of rules, and you messed up rule number five there, so you're going to hell. And it misses the point, because sin 
is simply just living in a way that's not God's way. And what we believe is that God created this world to operate in a certain way. And when we follow God's ways, then things operate as they should. But when we don't operate God's ways, things fall apart. The brokenness enters into the world. And that is the heart of what we believe about the fall of man. That we rejected God's ways for our, our, for our own and the world has never been the same. And so when we talk about this issue, what we're really saying is not, oh, well, you know, homosexuality is a sin, you broke the rule, you're going to hell. That's not even the point. So much as you're not living the way God intended you to live. This isn't going to be good for our nation in the long run according to what God says. He's the one that made it all. And I know it's confusing and I know that it's heartbreaking. And you know you try to place yourself in someone's shoes that deals with that. Be a tough life and a tough thing to say, wow... The way I feel like I'm wired, you know, is not what God says. And yet we have to stick with what God says because He's the one that created us, not ourselves. And so we believe that it is something that adds brokenness to our world. Not something that brings peace and hope and trust to our world. And there will be those who disagree with us about that. But if we're going to be a people of faith who try to follow what God's Word says, then we're going to have to cling to what God's Word says, even when it's not a popular thing. Let's move forward, because I know that leaves its own set of unresolved questions, and we'll get there. Another question I want to spend just kind of a brief moment, hopefully even briefer moment on, is just concerning America. And I, and I feel like, you know, on this, we're celebrating the birthday of America right after this whole thing happens. And, and I just, I really feel like it's time for the church to recognize increasingly more so than we have in the past in America that America is not the church and that our citizenship belongs first to God's kingdom. And I, and I think that one of the things this, you know, and things like this are going to do is it's going to wake up the church in America a little bit to recognizing that our kingdom citizenship comes first. Not that... I just think in many ways we've sometimes confused and blurred the lines a little bit more than we should have. What I mean by that is that sometimes we've treated America a little bit like Israel. That we feel like that we've been God's chosen instrument, His chosen people, through which He's going to bring salvation to the world. I know that's kind of an extreme statement, an extreme version of it, but sometimes the way we talk about America and the way we talk about ourselves and our country and and Christian nation and so forth it, it ends up feeling that way a little bit and we need to remember that Israel was a unique circumstance a unique time and a unique people and that was fulfilled when Jesus came from that nation and became the salvation for the world and he established a kingdom that's not of this world 
And it's important for us to remember that. It's important for us to remember that even though we can love the history of America and the heritage of our country and the freedoms that we've enjoyed, that our first citizenship belongs to God's kingdom. And we have fellow citizens across this globe. We should be more concerned about our brothers and sisters in Christ who are being persecuted for their faith than we are for just our American citizens. Does that make sense at all? And times like this should remind us because while we can still be, you know, you can still have emotions tied to the choices that America makes and so forth, we still we shouldn't be too surprised when a government and a kingdom of this world makes choices that don't line up with God's kingdom. Because it's not God's kingdom. So I think it's going to be important for us to remember, and I think it's going to be a good thing for our church, for our churches. And I think it's going to contribute to unity, which has been such an important part of the Church of God's message all along. As we come together and join together and realize that, hey, we're going to have to hold tight to one another as God's kingdom, as with Christ as our king. The last question that I really want to tackle is, how should we respond? And I think that's perhaps the most important question in all this. And we're going to look at some scripture. And if you've got your Bibles in front of you, you can pull them out at this point. How should we respond as Christians, as a church? First thing we're going to do is look at Romans chapter 1. Feel free to use your table of contents. If you're using a Bible in the pew, it looks like we're on page 1177 if you've got the large print it'll probably be a little bit further on than that Romans 1 is one of those uh, very clear passages about this topic like we mentioned earlier and it's one that's been thrown around quite a bit. You may have seen some of it quoted on Facebook this week if you've been on Facebook or uh, if you've been reading other Christian materials, you may have run across it as well. I'm going to start at verse 18 and we're just going to read a little while. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what, we may be, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts, 
to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. I'll stop there just for a second because it's a very good definition for idolatry that helps us see how it applies in our life as well. Even though we don't live in a time where we have maybe pagan shrines and all. We're going to talk about this more in actually next week's message when we get back to Judges. But idolatry is basically worshiping and serving created things rather than the Creator. So anytime we take something of this world and elevate it, whether it's another person, whether it's ourselves, whether it's money, whether it's status, whether it's pleasure, power, you name it. Anytime we take something that's a created thing and elevate it to the place of that only the Creator should have, that's a problem. Let's keep going at verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to the sinful... Oh, we already read that part. 26. God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. And men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. Here we're talking about just the world at large. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do it, these very things, but also approve or celebrate those who practice them. One thing I'll mention before we go any further is, you notice this passage started out by saying the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. And then it tells us how. It says God gave them over to their desires. And this ties in with what we've been studying in Judges. So I thought I'd point it out. Because that's what it keeps saying. It's part of our Judges cycle, you might remember. Is the people would reject God. And God in His anger would turn them over. To what their hearts had desired. And then when they ended up in trouble, they'd repent. And then went through that whole cycle. I just thought it would be worth pointing out. you know, Because a lot of times, like we said when we introduced that Judges series, a lot of times when we think of the wrath of God, we think of, you know, blowing you out of the water, you know, but a lot of times, more often than not, when we read about God's wrath in Scripture, it talks about Him saying, okay, have it your way. As you read through that list, if you are like the people, like the Roman church that Paul wrote to, If you are a Christian that's been in the church any amount of time, if you consider yourself a moral person, then chances are as you read that, there might be a little bit of a swelling of pride. Preach it, Paul! Tell them people how it is. Set them right! Bring it! (laughs) So then, 
Paul writes Romans chapter 2 that we don't like to continue on with. You therefore have no excuse you who pass judgment on someone else for at whatever point you judge the other you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you a mere man pass judgment on them and yet do the same things do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness tolerance and patience not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? I remember the first time that I read Romans 1 and 2 at the same setting. Because I've always just read it. I had read it several times in college and so forth as we'd study Romans. But we always would take it, you know, one chapter at a time or one section at a time. And the first time that I read from Romans 1 to 2, I was so humbled. So I just felt God's Spirit speaking into my life. But for the grace of God, that be you. Who are you to feel so high and mighty, Neil? (laughs) And there's a a deeper level to that too that we're going to come to. But I just want to say that first of all, how should we respond? We should respond in humility, not in pride. We should remember and have a correct perspective and remember that it's only by the grace of God that we're saved and that we're where we're at today and I can't even begin to imagine I mean I know from looking at my own life and surely you can look at your own life as well and I know that my tendencies and I know my struggles and I know that if there wasn't God's word and if there wasn't his spirit I'd be in as bad a shape as anybody. And then when I think about, you know, I come from a, from a long line of Christians. I think we figured up the other day, I was talking to my Mimi, and she, we figured, I'm seventh generation, just Church of God. Not to even talk about, you know, before that was when the Church of God was born, you know, some of my ancestors became a part of that, were Christians before that. That's a lot of generations that I stand on and think well what if that wasn't my lineage and what if not for the grace of God through all these generations what would my life have been like what kind of environment would I have grown up in what would have been passed on to me so we need to have humility we need to try to imagine and place ourselves in someone else's shoes sometimes Realize that their life hasn't been all roses. Hmm. Not only, uh, you know, that reminds me of that story Jesus told. He talked about two guys praying in public in the temple, and the Pharisee was over there and he was praying. God, thank you that I'm not like that sinner over there. But if we're honest, haven't we had that heart sometimes? I know I have. 
And I didn't pray it exactly like that. But I looked down in, you know, scorn or shame or just with condescension in my spirit towards people that do things that I think, you know, they ought to know better. And in a sense, they should. But Jesus said the prayer that God found acceptable was the sinner's prayer that said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that is the spirit that we're to have as Christ followers, a humble spirit. That recognizes that we would be nothing without the mercy of God. Without the grace of God. That passage we read concluded at chapter 2 verse 4 that said, Don't you realize God's kindness leads you towards repentance? And this is the second thing in how we should respond. We should respond in repentance. And this goes hand in hand with humility. We were in Springfield visiting our old church family up there. It was good to see them this last week. And and Pastor Rick was actually speaking on this story, another story of Jesus where he shared and taught. Uh, And this is actually Matthew 7. We can go there. If you still got your Bibles out, travel over to Matthew 7. If you're using the Pew Bible, looks like we're at page uh, 1013. He was actually preaching on this passage, and so it was fresh on my mind as I was thinking about this. And we'll start chapter 7, verse 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. The thing that stood out to me the most about what Pastor Rick shared from this last week was he said, so often we, we preach that at someone who we feel like is being judgmental, and then we just let that be it, and we ignore that last part. It says, and then you will see clearly to help. There's a place for helping someone with their problems. But that place is in a spirit of repentance. And that place is in getting your own business right. And this is really, talk, the context of this is really within the church. And talking about, uh, you know, not trying to fix everyone else before you fixed yourself in the church. But it, surely this principle must also apply when we want to, point, shake our finger at the world and tell them everything that they're doing wrong when the church doesn't quite have their business in order either. And I just want to point out some statistics and I won't go into all the details of them because you've probably heard similar statistics before and if not you may be in for an eye opener but a 2014 study of men who identified themselves, many of them as, as serious Christians this was by the Barna group 95% of them admitted that they viewed pornography. 54% look at it at least once a month. 31% had a sexual affair while married. 25% erased their internet browsing history to conceal pornography use. Similar studies have shown uh, 
sexual immorality issues to be a, and, and lust issues to be a major issue for Christian women as well. According to the 2014 State of Dating in America report published by Christian Mingle and J-Date, I have no idea who that is, they said in their survey that 61% of the Christians they surveyed said that they would have sex before marriage. 56% said that it's appropriate to move in with someone after dating for a time between six months and two years. I share all that just to say... Whenever I see masses of Christians on social media shaking their fists at the world about the way that they're living sexually immoral lives, I wonder how many of those same people are living sexually immoral lives of their own. And they just don't think it's as bad as what other people are doing, maybe? I don't know. But according to these statistics, it's a safe bet that we've got people sitting here in this room with us that are struggling to conquer these addictions and these problems. I'm not saying that we need to shake the finger at them either. We need to help them up and out of that along with the Holy Spirit. But sometimes we get so worked up about what the world's up to and we're not even taking care of our own business. You know what I'm saying? We get so fretful that Amer- what's America doing to itself? What is the church doing to itself? When we've got rampant divorce that's breaking up our families. Now some of it is needed to happen. You know, I mean, Jesus said there's cases where it has to happen. And we can, we'll talk, that's a message for another day. But when we're just trading spouses like we change our underwear, okay? And when we're living promiscuous lifestyles, when we're shacking up with people before we marry with them, when we're doing all this stuff as the church, we don't have much of a right to shake our finger at the world, in my opinion. And so I think one of the ways that we need to respond as the church is to repent. To humble ourselves and to repent. Some of us are dealing with this kind of stuff now. And some of us have in the past. And so we all should approach this issue from a place of humility and repentance. Amen? It's a quiet amen and that's okay. (laughs) Another way we should respond is in love. And we're going to go travel over to Ephesians. Back the other way. Ephesians chapter 4, page 1,226. Around verse 11, it starts talking about how Jesus gave some to be apostles and some to be prophets and some to be evangelists and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And then we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. 
and instead speaking the truth in love. We will in all things grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. Speaking the truth in love. I've said before that sometimes I think Christians mix that up and think that it says speaking the truth is love. No matter how you say it. <laughs> you know, if I'm, I'm just going to speak the truth in love, they say, and then they don't say it very lovingly. You know, I think, ooh, maybe they think it says speak the truth is love. Um, but it's speak the truth in love. You know, I would say that, that you know, we have a political process in this country and that Christians should be engaged in it. And you should do your part in voting your conscience and, and doing all that. But this you know, battle is not going to be won in legislation or in the court system. And I really think where the kingdom is going to make progress is on a personal level. It's not going to happen on social media either, I can tell you, because it's just crazy out there. Where it will happen is when someone you know who struggles with this, with their sexuality, and has been going after all these alternative lifestyles, and they find that it doesn't bring them the peace and the hope that they thought it would, in love, you're going to be able to put your arm around them and say, let me talk to you about Jesus. Because I believe, we believe, that He's the only one that can bring that kind of peace to your life that you're looking for. I just believe that's where the victories are going to be won. And in settings where we can respond in love and truth. You know, love won't always feel like love. Even so, no matter how loving we are. You know, and if you've ever been a parent of a teenager, or if you've been a teenager then you kind of know how that works because sometimes your parents sit you down and in love they share that they don't approve of something you're doing and no matter how lovingly they say it it doesn't feel like love at the time does it sometimes it just feels like they don't get you or they don't get it or <laughs> they need to get out <laughs> or you know it's, it doesn't feel like love and so there'll be times no matter how loving we are that it's not received as love that doesn't excuse us or give us license to be disrespectful or insensitive in the way that we treat people who are dealing with these issues. So we respond in love. What does all this mean for our church? You know, in the Supreme Court decision and all that. Uh, ultimately, the decision that the Supreme Court handed down states that and I quote, The 14th Amendment requires a state to license a marriage between two people of the same sex and to recognize a marriage between two people of the same sex when their marriage was lawfully licensed and performed out of state. So it really doesn't say much about the church. Um, lots of people are reading between the lines. And we'll just have to see how it all shakes out. When asked point blank by the judges, the prosecutor for the Obama administration in this case, 
I was asked, you know, what will this mean for our Christian institutions like our Christian schools and so forth? And he said, well, it's going to be an issue. So we can expect it to be an issue, at least for our Christian schools and so forth that have policies in place, but also receive federal funding. Uh, so I would, suggest, I would imagine that it will be an issue for them before it's an issue for the local church. We're already in the process of adding wording to our bylaws just to have something legally stated. We don't know how much good it'll do, but have something legally stated that'll state what we believe as a church about this issue. That marriage was created by God and intended for one man and one woman. Uh, Even so, I mean, it's possible at some point down the road push comes to shove, churches might begin to lose tax, you know, exempt privileges and things like that. But, you know, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'll still give the same amount whether I'm getting a tax write-off or not. So we'll cross that bridge when we get there. But another thing, worry that might crop up in some people's mind is um, what might happen, you know, if if somebody gay shows up here? What are we going to do? And on the surface, that question reminds me of, of uh, this story that Jim Lyon shared on the last little session of our convention up there. And uh, again, before any of this came out, and he was sharing about how one Sunday at his church, this uh, usher, one of his head ushers, came up to him and said, I need to talk to you in private, and pulled him aside and said, There's prostitutes in the foyer. <laughs> I said, What are we going to do? <laughs> And he joked that his first question was, how do you know they're prostitutes? <laughs> but it, the guy was a, uh, was a police officer, and he knew you know, from his line of, of work about these ladies. And, and Jim Lyon just said, well, help them find a seat. <laughs> They've come to hear the gospel, you know? Let's let them hear it. Now there's a you know I mean, that you hear about cases where militant kind of people with an agenda come to try and disrupt things, but I mean we don't we're not good with anybody disrupting things, no matter where they're from or who they are. So we'll deal with that as, it, as if it comes. But uh, but as far as I mean, if somebody wants to come here who's gay, let's find them a seat and let's let them hear the gospel. And I hope that we can surprise them by love, where they thought they were going to find hatred. What does it mean for you and I individually? One thing that we can all do for sure, whether we know somebody or don't know somebody or what we, where we find ourselves in life, is we can pray. We can pray for our nation. We can pray for our world. We can pray for the governments. We can pray for the Supreme Court and for the Congress. And we can pray for the state leadership as they deal and wrestle with this. We can pray for our Christian institutions that are having to wrestle with what this means for them. We can pray for the gay community, and we should. We can pray for the church. And like we said, you can, you should be involved in the political process. I'm not here to tell you how to vote, and everyone's got their different opinions on all that stuff. We've got Democrats and Republicans and everything in between in here. So we're not going to get down in the nitty-gritty of all that. But you can be involved in the political process to try and do your best to vote for people that you think are going to usher in the values of God's kingdom.
because we believe those are best for our world. But like I've said before, it's not the battles aren't going to be won there. The battles aren't going to be won on, by posting witty remarks on social media or getting you a neat bumper sticker. We're not going to win the battles there. But what we can do is, like we say, one-on-one, personal levels, we can show Jesus to people. We can speak truth into their life in a loving way. And we can be prayerfully on the lookout for opportunities in our families, and in our friend networks to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And as we do all this and as we pray, maybe we'll remember and get our vision corrected a little bit and remember that our hope was never in the Supreme Court anyway. Right? We'll remember that there's still much wrong with this world, but Christ came and is coming again to set things right. And it's our job as this church to do our part to do that now. We'll remember that we're citizens of that kingdom. And that our citizenship in that kingdom can't be stolen by any powers of this world. We'll remember that we ourselves are children of God, ambassadors of God, sent to this place for a purpose. As we pray, I think we'll find ourselves lovingly longing for a better life for people who are living in brokenness. And maybe we'll even feel, begin to feel a love and a sorrow, a godly sorrow and a tenderness towards people that we were once bitter towards, spiteful towards, or even hateful towards. And we can just go right on praying that those folks will find true peace and true love, true acceptance and true hope that can only be found in Christ and never in this world. Because we are the church and we are world changers and we are difference makers. That's who we are. We're ambassadors of God. Placed in this place, at this time, by the author of all life, for a purpose. We can't afford to be frightened by what tomorrow may hold. We can't afford to be intimidated by any power of this world or even by hell itself. Because we know who we are, and we know whose we are. Amen? And I pray that when people see us, they'll see just some ordinary folks who've been spending time with an extraordinary person named Jesus. An extraordinary God, empowered by an extraordinary Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you so much for your way of life. God, we confess that we in the church have had a problem with sexual immorality as well. 
We confess that we've sometimes had a prideful spirit where we should have had a humble one. So Lord, forgive us and help us to live out our faith in humility and repentance and love, but also in boldness, God. You've called us to care deeply and live boldly with Jesus as our subject. I pray you'd help us to do just that. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.